Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to episode 101 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Aaron, and with me, as always, is my co-host and best friend, Patrick. Hey, what's up? But also joining us is returning guest and friend of the show, Andrew Dice from ScreenRant.com. Greetings. Last week, we celebrated 100 episodes by covering the greatest animated film trilogy of all time, Toy Story. We really had a blast breaking down the three films, and we encourage you to revisit them and give this conversation a listen. This week, we will transition into the world of video game adaptations. But before we get to talking about the latest Tomb Raider movie, let's catch up on anything awesome that we may have been watching lately, because we have not gotten to do that recently. Andrew, since you're a guest, as always, would you like to share anything that has been uh, catching your eye lately? Uh, I would. I've had a... It's been a very busy time of year with movies and TV and all of that. But um, sometimes that ends up being a bonus because, uh, well, I two things that have really been not just, you know, <laughs> rewarding or a relief in terms of covering it, but uh, the big one, I know you guys have had, there are some mixed receptions to Star Wars, the well, the Clone Wars, and then Star Wars Rebels. Uh, Rebels, which has now come to a close. Uh, which is an interesting thing because maybe people shouldn't really decide how they feel about a Star Wars property before it ends. Because I feel like there is a more often than not, those things are conceived of to have kind of a soul to them, even if they don't necessarily, uh, even if it's maybe at the cost of other things. Uh, Mm -hmm. But Rebels was a really interesting passage. It was a really interesting combination of, the things I liked and the things that I liked less from Clone Wars while taking a a much, much bigger and more ambitious and intriguing step into Star Wars mythology and the lore that really took it from the version of the story that everybody knows into some pretty hardcore fantasy and almost stepping into bits of science fiction-y fantasy, um, speculative fiction that can be a lot of fun. so that's really entertaining to me. I, I would recommend anybody. Um, <laughs> I'm sure there are some very terrific guides for watching Star Wars Rebels out there because there are definitely some bits of, you know, droid vaudeville mixed in that I'm less fond of, or maybe the bottle episodes that are intended for a younger crowd, uh, which is all well and good. But where the show ended up, I think that you could probably take the four seasons, is it? I think so. Yeah, I think this was the fourth season. Yeah, you could probably condense that into uh, maybe even two movies that would just be some pretty mind-blowing, really, really great stuff from a movie. So if you have the time to devote to it, maybe put it on the background while you're doing other work for those bottle episodes. That would be a fun thing. Oh, that's, uh, a, that's a great idea. I, I haven't even thought about doing something like that where you kind of maybe even pick and choose, like you're saying, mm-hmm. and just cutting some out that are unnecessary. Uh, and make it go a little bit faster and smoother. Yeah. I, I've watched some yeah. of it. I've watched maybe a season and a half, a season, half a season-ish, mm-hmm. three quarters of a season, something like that. I know I really enjoyed the new characters. I enjoyed a lot of the setup. 
and like you, it was kind of nice. I, I loved Clone Wars, so yeah. it has that same feeling about it. Um, I love Kanan. Just I just love in general the new the whole new crew. Yeah. So eventually, I'm going to get through them. But goodness, it is. It's tough. Yeah, that, and that is and that is the thing. It's, you remind me to say that the second season is so laughably better than the first one uh, in terms of animation and performances and resources in all ways. And then I think season four is definitely the high point for that. So that's always nice to see. Um, but in a in a less nerdy twist, I've also enjoyed uh, kind of binging in the background with my wife. Uh, Bob's Burgers. Uh huh. Patrick's gonna like that. Yeah. Um. I I feel like this is recommended to people in the totally wrong way because it is. I I didn't realize until after the fact how much Family Guy and the Cleveland Show and that brand of adult animated comedy really burned me out. Um. It's not. It, it doesn't have to be highbrow humor, and that's that's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would never accuse Family Guy of being a really intelligent show. Uh, in terms of his comedy and i know they've taken criticism for that that's not necessarily a bad thing but people would lump bob's burgers in with that kind of thing when saying like oh i love family guy i love bob's burgers and then watching bob's burgers uh i I seriously have reservations about the name i'm not sure that's the best name for the show but uh it is really it's dumb to say smart because people say like Rick and Morty is smart and that in, in, that implies a division. I think that Bob's Burgers is just really well written. It's it's not yeah. cheap or you could take a script and act it out on stage in front of people and it would be just as funny. Right. Uh, you know, it, it is the there's no nobody gets kind of the short end of the script or like the stereotype or, you know, the one line. There's no Meg in uh, Bob's Burgers. And mm. it's also fantastically performed uh hilariously written and it is so quick at times uh and then also just really really silly and fun and big broad strokes that i would be astounded if anybody likes watching comedy and watches a few episodes of bob's burgers and doesn't end up saying oh i'm definitely adding this into my rotation of you know (laughs) comedy super on in the background because um within probably 10 episodes you can get into arguments with people about which one of the characters is quote unquote you that's true. Uh, I'm I'm probably Gene. Yeah. Uh, for anyone who knows, so you can probably get that. Get that familiar <laughs> me. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, and I think just like most successful TV show, TV shows, but maybe comedy specifically, I feel like Bob's Burgers found its footing in its second season. The first season was yeah. worth getting through, but the second season really took off in terms of being what you're talking about—a very well-written, um, confident. Yeah. yeah, I mean, extremely confident in how the characters are portraying themselves, uh, even the animation and uh, the the little nuances that that the that the showrunners and the writers and the animators said we're going to include this in every in every episode. I love the mm-hmm. the opening credits where you have Bob's Burgers that goes through five different um, <laughs> grand openings Open, because of yeah. random things, but the stores on the left and right of them are always changing. And and I, and I love shows like that. Uh, the Drew Carey show was like that. You always had some kind of yeah. big musical number at the beginning of each episode. And um, when you can when you can take tertiary elements like that on a on a show and make them just as funny or just as uh, familiar to your audience, I think that's that says a lot about the confidence of the show as a whole. Because they're not having to depend on 
those things. Those things are almost like plus ones in the grand scheme of things because they've already got a solid, uh, a solid writing element to it. Yeah. It's like a, a tighter, weirder, more modern, everybody loves Raymond but mm-hmm. without a laugh track. Yeah. I can see that. Kind of, you know, you could sit and watch a single scene and you would st- sort of chuckle once or twice under your breath. But the more you watch, um, I, I just, I can't rec I can't recommend trying it. Um, you know, more highly it's on Netflix, I think too. So it's actually a- it's not, it was removed from Netflix and I was saddened by that. It's on Hulu now. Um, and I haven't taken the, uh, the oh, man. financial plunge. Do you have Netflix? a different, I was going to yeah. say, you have a different yeah. Netflix up there in Canada. Oh man. I got all of it on there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's yeah, a so, yeah it's slowly so cool it's stuff crazy. you have up there. <laughs> <laughs> it's not secret Canadian toy box of digital media. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll go down the list. Like, oh, you guys don't have all Seinfeld on there? <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, listeners, a uh, quick just plug for a podcast that is run by some friends of ours called Home One Radio. They are a Star Wars podcast, and every single week, all they do is talk about Star Wars. I don't know how they do it, but whatever. Uh, They're great, and they are really passionate fans, and they have talked a lot about Star Wars Rebels. So if you are a Star Wars Rebel viewer, I would definitely encourage you to check out their podcast. That's Home One Radio. Well, Patrick, what about you? Have you been up to anything this last week now that we've kind of started to slow back down into a regular podcast schedule where we're not putting out three episodes in a week? Well, we'll see how regular it gets if we can get through one or two of these in a row. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely been a crazy few weeks between uh, our 100th episode and other things that were going on with me. But I had a chance to take not really the recommendation, but really more of the inspiration from our uh, discussion with uh, Adam Rakoff several weeks ago. And I checked out a documentary that he and Matthew Modine helped produce called The Brainwashing of My Dad. It came out in 2015. And it's about a woman named Jensenko, whose dad, a World War II vet, she noticed that over the course of several years after he had taken a job that required a long commute, he began to be exposed to, um, and I'll just use these terms just for the sake of the documentary, right-wing media, things like Rush Limbaugh and whatnot. And she noticed a change in him and how his viewpoints on... Uh, politics in general, but specific things uh, that he was normally very, I guess, kind of open-minded about. He began to kind of close himself off of. And what really drew me to it was that premise. But what I came to find out was that it was really like her relationship with her dad and, and that whole story was, it wasn't really about him. He became kind of the the launching pad for a history of how right-wing media kind of came into uh, came into being. And uh, so they talked about how the the politics of the 60s helped influence that and how it led into the 70s and 80s. And so over the course of the documentary, we get a lot of interviews with people that um, had similar stories about relatives who were exposed to that kind of stuff and uh, professionals who had kind of researched that and had noticed the same kinds of patterns, had been had written books about it. But the thing that I took away from it more than anything, and this actually came from a conversation that I didn't intend to have with a coworker. Um, I was talking to my my friend who's a who's a movie uh, movie fan too, and I was telling him about it. And when I mentioned the word right wing media, it immediately perked up the ears of my of my other coworker, who was like, "Well, I'm curious to think if there are documentaries out there that talk about left wing media, you know, and that kind of thing." And you could tell that it was kind of irking him a little bit. 
and kind of pushing the wrong buttons, which was not my intent. I wasn't even talking to him about it, but it be, it began to create this idea in me that as much as I love documentaries and we've talked about this, there's always some kind of slant and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with being unapologetic about your vantage point because the reason you have a documentary is because you want to tell a story and you're going to include certain parts of your story uh, for the sake of trying to tell what your overall narrative is. So I didn't have a problem with that. What it did make me realize was that I want to explore multiple sides of, of these different worldviews. And I don't necessarily recommend this as being like, hey, if you want to find out about the history of right-wing media, check this documentary out. I would say, watch this documentary. And if it really entices you to to find out more, then go and explore that and find the the other side of the coin. Make sure, look into the things that are uh, exposing both sides of it. Because there's definitely stuff out there that slants towards either one. Michael Moore comes to mind <laughs> as the the other side of that of that vantage point. But as a narrative, it was really, really entertaining because over the course of the documentary, she would always come back to her dad and kind of where he was at this point in the history of this uh, phenomenon. And um, it's narrated by Matthew Modine. So that's always a plus anytime he gets to narrate something. But um, I definitely recommend it. I believe it's currently streaming for free if you have an Amazon Prime account. But yeah, definitely check that out if you're interested in documentaries like me in general, and specifically this kind of psychological transformation. Uh, that's also what drew me to that was this, how being exposed to this over the course of several, several years, how it changes a person. I'm sure it happens more than just politics, but this is a nice little entry into understanding kind of how psychology plays a part in the uh, overexposure of something. Awesome. That's uh, you'll have to let Matthew know that you watched it and see what he's. I I tweeted him and told him I watched one of the movies he recommended. So uh, you'll have to <laughs> you'll have to let him know. That sounds pretty interesting. I I like the opposite sides of an issue being explored as well because, like you said, you can't get one. Very few documentaries are going to intentionally show you two distinct sides of an argument. Now there one there are documentaries that are done specifically for that purpose that mm. intentionally are a filmmaker interviewing people from two different perspectives, but mostly they're someone trying to say something. Yeah, and you just have to keep that in mind when you're watching right. it. Like you said, as long as you're aware of it, then you can take that in appropriately and yeah. not necessarily let it completely change your views. Yeah. <laughs> if, uh, I joking, yeah, I jokingly say that unless your name is Ken Burns, you're probably going to be biased in the documentaries that he <laughs> creates because I don't think I think he's one of the few people that I think has the most unbiased vantage point because he's just saying, "Here's what happened," and here's some great pictures and great narration over. Yeah, there. yeah, not not very often you find a documentarian who says, "I feel very passionately about all sides of this issue." <laughs> exactly. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, mine is kind of a little bit different. It's something that I found out about that had appeared on Netflix last week. And I'm hoping you guys have it up there in Canada since now that I know you have a different Netflix schedule than us. <laughs> it's Hans Zimmer live in Prague. And what it is, is a Hans Zimmer concert literally just filmed um, from when he was in Prague doing this in 2017. And our listeners will probably know that Patrick and I at least are both humongous fans of Mr. Zimmer's music and his scores. And so as soon as I found out about this, it was 
towards the tail end of my recovery. I had my appendix out a couple of weeks ago and have been, I got to have some weeks off of work. And so I was just watching a whole lot of movies. So I could fill this section up for like five hours of things that I've actually been up to lately. But this is the one that kind of stuck out at the end. And I threw it on and I just started watching it. And I was immediately immersed into this musical experience with Hans Zimmer. It really is incredible. And if you like his film scores at all, it's a must watch. He's a magician. Uh, it really kind of shows just how much of a legend he is because everything that he writes evokes so much emotion. And I don't know that all film scores do that for me. There are film scores that feel appropriate. I, I could list some like maybe Shape of Water is a good example for recent ones where it feels like this is the right score for this movie. It's whimsical. It's fant fantasy sounding, but it doesn't evoke a, a lot of emotion and well those feelings up inside me. Zimmer's music does <laughs> in a big, big way. Like that's what he is good at. And so it was really neat to watch him perform these again. Uh, he had some guests on. One guest came on. I think they did the Lion King uh, theme, and she was she was singing it in in a in a tribal African way. And then there was uh, Incubus's guitarist, one of, not the lead singer Brandon Boyd, but one of the other ones, Mike. I forgot his last name, uh, but he came on and he did some stuff with Zimmer in one of the scores. And it's just really cool. Zimmer comes to the mic between sets and explains some things. He tells some stories about the making of some of these scores and just background history of the movies that he worked on. And then there's also a very, very touching tribute where he takes the theme from Dark Knight Rises and kind of tweaks it a little bit. And it's a it's specifically done for a tribute to the shooting victims of Aurora, Colorado, where that midnight shooting happened at the Dark Knight Rises opening uh, showing back whenever it was in early 2000s, I believe. So it's very touching. I mean, brought me it brought me to tears during that point because he, you can just feel how hurt he is. You know that his film score, his music is in his movie in in some way is tied to that event, and he really just wanted to do this to kind of help people heal. From what I understand, that track you can purchase on the internet. Uh, and it will, the proceeds go to a, a foundation for Aurora, Colorado, but all of that's explained in the awesome concert. So if you just go watch it, it's about two hours long. I've, I've watched it twice now. I watched it on back to back days and I guarantee it's going to be the thing that I just put in the background to play while I'm doing podcast notes or writing reviews or working in any kind of capacity creatively, because it's just it's so phenomenal and I can't recommend it enough. Alrighty, guys. Well, with that all out of the way, it is time to get to rating some tombs. So let's start off by giving our obligatory spoiler warning that we are talking about the new movie, Tomb Raider 2018, starring Alicia Vikander. If you have not seen it, turn away now. We are going to spoil it. If you have seen it, keep listening. If you haven't seen it, go watch it because it's a good movie and it's a lot of fun. And we're going to tell you why but you can't hear us tell you why until you've seen it. So you see how that works? It's kind of a conundrum. Anywho. <laughs> all right, fellas. I need some instructions there. Apparently. <laughs> Put them on the website. <laughs> well, we like to start off with our one word takeaway. 
to kind of frame our opening thoughts around, Andrew. So if you would be so kind, do you have a word that you kind of come to when you think about your experience seeing this film? Uh, My word would be authentic. That is not at all a word that I expected to right. use uh, in in regards having seen two Tomb Raider movies already in which very little is authentic. Um, maybe the dirt biking. I feel like they did do that in the second one. And Gerard Butler is authentic in everything he does. But in this version of the story, uh, I ended up and I tweeted, I think you guys saw that this in my mind is exactly not who I would want Lara Croft to be because I never thought about that, but this felt like who that character is. If they were actually a character in the world today that you could make a game about or a movie about. Um, so I think that was, and we'll, we'll probably get into it discussing the final ending of the movie, its approach to being more authentic than fantasy. But uh, I thought that, all of it was kind of grounded in, if not something that was necessarily believable, uh, it, it did feel like it was making an effort to seem real uh, in as many little ways as big ones. So it qualifies as more of um, an adventure movie in the classical sense of it, you know, the Indiana Jones and all of that. Um, people get hurt and that kind of thing uh, yeah. more than some crazy, you know, capital F fantasy that would be also be an adventure. So yeah, if you're a fan of authentic adventure movies, I think that you can't go wrong with this. This is giving a nice hat tip to the mummy and all of those movies yeah. that used to be made, you know? Good, good comparison. Sahara. <laughs> yeah, very true. <laughs> Patrick, what about you? What was your one word takeaway for Tomb Raider? Well, I picked adventure and really it came down to the fact that I didn't have any expectations or at least no obvious ones going into this movie because I wasn't familiar with the franchise. Like I didn't grow up uh, playing the video game. I mean, I knew about it, but I wasn't enough of a gamer to put that in my catalog of of games that I played. And then when the the Angelina Jolie movies came out, it, it just did not interest me at all. And so one of the things I love about feeling film is that you can give me exposure into movies that you're excited about. And it lets me just partake in that excitement. So with that being said, I didn't really know what to expect. I mean, I knew a little bit about the property. I knew it was woman with guns shooting things and and running through tombs. uh, If, you know, if we're being just literal, but everything about my movie experience was really an adventure because of not knowing what was coming next or, or what, what to expect. And it made the experience a lot of fun to watch it. Andrew, you mentioned it harkened back to things like the mummy and Indiana Jones. And even if it didn't really blow my socks off, it was very successful in what I think movies should do as their primary goal. And that's to entertain. And it brings up that, that thought that we've, I think we've, we've discussed in the past, how it doesn't have to be a one or a five to be, talked about. It can be a three and still have value. So I looked at this as one of those movies that it served a purpose and that purpose was really good. And I walked away feeling really satisfied. Good. That's awesome. We're going to discuss that whole one versus five and where this falls thing a little bit later, because I've seen some of that online that has triggered me again. Uh, For for me, I, I landed on relief as my word. And that sounds probably a little bit negative potentially in context. But the reason is that 
This is a video game series that is very close to my heart. It's probably top three or four, maybe top five for me all time. It's my favorite action adventure video game series. I absolutely adore it. And really, especially so with the rebooted games in 2013 and 2015 that this new Lara Croft is based off of. And so I was very nervous and went into this with extremely high hopes, but also a tremendous amount of fear, just knowing the history of video game movies and how they turned out, even when we thought plenty of times that they were going to be great and didn't meet my expectations. And yet this one did in every way. I came out of it with one of the hugest smiles on my face. I was pumped up. I was just literally bouncing off the walls because I was so thrilled with the adaptation. And it does justice to the character of Lara Croft, the new character, the way that she should be. And I think I love the way you put it, Andrew, about how she could exist in this world right now, today in 2018. And some people are going to be like, oh, that's kind of silly. Why are you making everything modernized? But that's reality. That's what this character is when she lives. And I love that they didn't objectify her. So Angelina Jolie was great in her own way. And she made, she matched the model of Laura Croft at the time, the pixelated model, at least uh, visually. But the thing about Alicia Vikander is that it's not, it's not a sexualized performance that she gives. And in no way does the camera ever focus on her beauty. Yet she is obviously beautiful, but it's not about that. It's about her character and her strength and her qualities and her journey. And I love that she doesn't start off as a badass. She starts off as someone with emotional trauma and question marks. And she's, you know, out there just doing normal things through the world, trying to cope and get by. And then she goes through an experience. So it's it's more of an origin story. And I really like how it played out that way. And so, yeah, I was relieved because my favorite game did not get a terrible video game <laughs> adaptation, in my opinion. I think it's actually probably one of the best, if not the best. And uh, maybe we'll roll into that question. Where do you guys stand on that as far as video game adaptations go. Do you think that a couple questions, do you think that the movie succeeded for people who were movie fans, Patrick, that had not played the games and Andrew conversely, actually Andrew, have you played the game? Oh yeah. Both of them. Okay. I thought so. So then, and Andrew, have you, how do you approach it? Do you how do you see it as, I guess I'm stumbling on my words here. I'd like to know how you guys kind of see it differently like patrick did it work not having played the games yes it did and it, it it worked in that it didn't feel overblown the authenticity that i think andrew spoke of is the fact that it it's grounded in in real world stuff we're in london where we have a we have a character who has a backstory and that non-oversexualized uh nature that that you speak of gives her a sense of well it, it gives her personality that we can connect with almost immediately that we're not being drawn to something that is is fake or something that is uh intangible the whole story itself is adventurous but it's adventurous in that everything feels practical everything feels like hey i'm not just getting cg'd out here i'm not just i mean we're we're having 
scenes that set up other moments that set up other scenes that set up other moments. And so overall, the narrative was really cohesive. It was very tight. I didn't find any major uh, complaints with it at all because it felt, it felt like a very, I don't want to call it a safe film, but it felt like a film that made sense. Like it wasn't trying to be any more than it was. And, and I liked that. I liked that it was very unapologetic about its source material. And even though I didn't have any knowledge of the source material, I felt like it was one of these things that just, it felt like a good movie. It felt like it was, it was entertaining and, 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 and made it work. Did it make you want to play the games or did it, did it give you any sense of questioning about whether that was something you might want to check out? Um, a little bit, but I don't know that I saw enough in the movie that made me want to interact, like be a, be a participant. Mm-hmm. Like I felt I was fine being a spectator with this one. Okay. Whereas there's a lot of movies out there that I love being a participant, but this one I was completely fine with just sitting back and enjoying the show. Cool. Well, Andrew, on the other side of that, how do you feel about it as a, an adaptation of the source material from taking a lot of information from the 2013 rebooted game story and it kind of changes that around in a different way. How did you, do you think it served well as an adaptation? Yeah. You know what? I think adaptation is a tricky word because like it implies maybe a more direct thing. I think what you said, Patch, there that you didn't feel the need, you didn't feel the desire to interact. You felt you were fine being a spectator. And that's so funny to me because that is kind of what movies are supposed to be. <laughs> you know, like you're supposed to feel, no, I'm good just watching. Um, and I think a lot of times it's probably very hard to uh, tempt people into, or, or not just on the character or the, the setting or anything, but to show something on screen in cinematic storytelling that makes the person have a desire to do it themselves is probably more often a bad thing <laughs> than a good thing to make them going like, oh, I wish I could do this. You know, I, I have it figured out, don't you? Um, but I, it, it does feel like they took, for the for the game that was the modern game, they took the classic games and said, what would this be today? Like, how can we make this a bit more modern? And how can we make it pass in like today's idea of adventuring and adventure fiction and that kind of thing? And then I feel like with this one, the the writers and the director looked at that game and said, okay, how do we make this game? What is the story of this game that would work in a film? And a lot of that is that my wife Catherine kind of pointed out after the fact that I didn't I didn't feel this way in the moment but she said it felt like I was watching the game in terms of the challenges escalating and having to move from one place to another or one challenge to another and I think that maybe that is maybe that's like it's more descriptive than prescriptive like a game works that way because it is trying to progress a character with you and in an origin story, that is also just more often than not what is supposed to also be happening. A lot of the times it ends up being like a capital H hero's journey. And we are kind of meant to be in awe of who the character is by the time they get to the end of their origin story. But in a game, that's not the thing. You're there with them every step of the way. You're just supposed to feel that sense of accomplishment when it's done. And kind of the whole point of it 
is knowing the person that they were and seeing that still there at the end. You know, it's not some, you are the chosen one thing. So I feel like when you, when you adapt that successfully, which I think they did here, um, I'm not, I'm not in awe of Lara Croft at the end of the movie. And I'm, it doesn't feel like something grand or epic. It feels like this is the origin story of an absolute, like, you know, a person with agency and a badass who can defend themselves and has real motivations to do something that is their calling in life, you know? Um, And I think that is more video games succeed by holding your hand through that. Mm -hmm. And I think that the movie just did that a bit more. um, It didn't have grander aspirations. Like I think uh, Assassin's Creed is another recent one that tried to adapt that sense of wonder and tried to embrace the more fantastic of it. And I really enjoy Assassin's Creed for that as a fan of the games. But this is also, you know, Uncharted, the movie would not be this movie, but I like this movie because it is, it feels more personal. Yeah. Well, I'm hoping Ooh, that's the next one. That's another one I'm going to be very nervous about because it equally is right there with Tomb Raider yeah. as far as my favorite type action adventure goes. The for me, I thought the adaptation was really well done well as also, and it partially because I like the story a lot, and it pretty much covers many of the story beats from the 2013 game where she is looking for her father and she goes to the Devil's Triangle and she crashes yeah. and she comes upon an island. Where the story diverges from the game to the movie, I was incredibly pleased with because on the game side she ends up running into a cult and uh, what is it? Is it Yamaka? Himiko. Sorry, Himiko. Yeah. The, the worshipers of the island or the island natives are worshiping. Yes. Yamatai are worshiping uh, Himiko. And it really goes more into the supernatural way toward the end of it. There's a cult and a cult leader and things like that. And I like that they, left that in the story, but then kind of debunked it with reality because it grounded the movie and and it made it more realistic. Like you guys both have mentioned. Mm -hmm. So as an adaptation, I think it it took those things and then brought them to the film side and, and even made it better. And I hope that more games can do this. My question, next question is twofold. It's one, where do you think this stands as far as video game adaptation films, in your opinion. And then two, do you think there's a reason for so many failures? And what is there ever going to be a world where we get great video game adaptations? And I wonder about that because this is a film that is based on a game that is a cinematic storytelling journey. So it's naturally easier to adapt this story than it is to take something like Mortal Kombat, which in reality has a story tacked onto it, but it's a game about fighting each other. And you're trying to build a movie around that. And I'm wondering if there's ever going to be a way in which games that aren't like Tomb Raider, this cinematic adventure story can be adapted. So where do you guys land on all that? Well, I mean, is as someone who has a special place in his heart for the Mortal Kombat's for different reasons altogether, I, I think that it's difficult because 
you're asking your audience to invest in something on the movie side that they would invest in on a game side. So take Warcraft, for instance, um, Warcraft, which was, you know, highly successful overseas, but didn't have a big, strong pull domestically. It's an epic tale, but it's not necessarily a linear tale, at least from what I understand. And when you have, when you have games whose objective is not to tell a story, that's probably your biggest crutch or your biggest challenge is to say, how do we bring that to the big screen? Because what you do is you run the risk of just paying homage to, uh, uh, to, to the video game itself. Like here, let's throw back this, let's call back to this. And so movies like Mortal Kombat, Super Mario Brothers, Street Fighter, these are, these are movies that you have to have good writing. You have to put equally as much of an investment in the story at this point as you do the characters, because the characters, if they're the driving force, unless they have that agency in the game, I don't think it's going to be successful because people don't go to movies to watch people just fight. I mean, Fight Club is a movie that has fighting in it, and but it's not about the club itself. It's about the story of participants in it and two individuals. And I think that when you get into adaptations of video games, the objective is different. Um, I'd love to see The Last of Us adapted as a film because I think that hits on a major emotional uh, narrative standpoint. Um, but I don't, I don't know that you're going to have successful games whose objective is not storytelling um, put into a theater as far as being successful. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it is trying to fit a round peg into a square hole um, kind of unavoidably. Like, you know, how do we turn this TV show into a great novel? Um, it's kind of like, why would you want to, you can't do that um, and expect people to go from one to the other. Also, I think there's a real problem is that games that are sometimes the most well-regarded in terms of world building and mythology have 50 plus hours to do it. And that is why people enjoy it. So great point. I mean, the, the mass effect movie, I, it, I could never enjoy it as much as the game. If they made a mass effect Netflix series, like altered, altered carbon, that's, you know, 10, 12 episodes that is really taking its time to see all this stuff. Cool. That makes sense. It, people will, you have a buy-in where people will give you the time to do it. I think a two hour, two and a half hour, convince me this is perfect or convince me who doesn't care about this game, why it's so great. It's just, that's never a recipe for success. Uh, if, if Uncharted succeeds, it'll just be an Indiana Jones movie, you know? So it, it's, it's hard, especially when you get into these games where the story is the point um, where you realistically have 30 hours to tell the story or even 10 hours to tell the story like uh tomb raider i think probably clocks in around there that you'll never have the time someone could play the game and see this movie and say that's great we both love lara croft but like i love that character differently i love a different version of that character because i spent so much more time investing uh, i think that that's one of the big reasons why games struggle i think another reason that games struggling adapting to movies is that most video games that get a big audience like that are real genre storytelling. Um, and that is always hard to do in movies. Well, you know, uh, make a really successful science fiction movie that seems to have all the things mass effect does and everyone will love it. And then you get Valerian 
And that's like, that's good, but that's divisive as heck for people because it's genre and genre is by its nature, you know, really divisive. Um, so I think they did the successful thing here, which is look at a game and say, what is it about this that people respond to? And with Tomb Raider, I think it is the story of a young woman who is destined to be an adventurer, not because she wants to be, but because that is who she becomes. And wouldn't that be a cool story to tell, you know? Um, so yeah. that's what you get in this. I, but And the same thing, I like uh, Assassin's Creed is genre as all get out could ever possibly be. And for that film, I, I see them looking at the game and saying, what is it that people respond to in this? And it's all the same stuff that's in that movie. It just, it can work one place and not another. Um, right. Yeah. And I, and I think that there's a sense of respect that you mm-hmm. have towards something like Tomb Raider because of the fact that it's immersed in a character journey as opposed to the fantastic or yep. little pieces and parts. And so as a, as an audience, if I'm invested in that video game, I feel like a, a filmmaker or this creative team behind this movie respects the adapt, respects the adaptation more because they're, they're spotlighting what I gravitated towards um, as a, as a, as a game player. Um, mm. And I think that if you took something like the last of us, it wouldn't, for me, I would feel probably like those that have, um, have, have connected with Tomb Raider because it's such a narratively driven character study as opposed to just a shoot 'em up. I mean, those are side elements of it and then, you know, major parts of it, but it's not what drives the story. And I think just like Tomb Raider, I could tell from watching the film that that's what drove the story, not guns and puzzles and strategy. Those are pieces of the story that helped drive the overall narrative, which was the story of Lara Croft. Okay. So you guys have touched on a couple things that I want to move forward on, but I want to know what do you think? Yes or no. Is this the best video game adaptation movie so far? And if no, what's the number one, Patrick? I mean, for my money, I having not played the game. Um, I can't really say it's the best, but I was more entertained by it than I think other ones. So but yeah. Best movie that. based on a video game. So okay. Then you don't then have yeah. to play the game. Okay. Then yeah. Andrew. I mean, for me, Super Mario Brothers is always going to be number one. <laughs> okay. No, that's okay. Uh, just because of how insane it is. But um, in terms of what I think you're asking, which is adapting the idea of a video game to a successful film story, uh, this is, yeah, immediately at the top. And I should probably say, I like this character of Lara more than the version that is in the game that is the same to it uh so it's not even a matter of did they get it right i think they nailed the things that are right about it and then also improved in certain places or cut out some of the stuff that just didn't work for me maybe yep. he's better to say i completely agree with you there and i i love the character even more than the game character and this is definitely my top tier for that and that's in a way that's awesome to finally get that and in another way it's kind of sad because it's still sort of you know just very good 
on the film scale. It never, it doesn't reach like greatness in my opinion. Now we've talked some about like puzzles and Indiana Jones has been brought up. There's a great quote in this movie where they say all myths have foundation in reality. And that is one of the things that I mentioned I loved is that they took out the supernatural element of the game's story when they used it and they then grounded it back into reality. Now at its heart, this video game series has always been about discovery. It's been about puzzles and exploration and relics and treasures. That's what tomb raiding is. And so of course they were going to raid a tomb in this one. It had to happen. I mean, that's kind of in the name of the movie and for non video gamers, that's got to be the core. It's interesting because in the video game series, Tomb Raiding is kind of your side quests, actually. You progress through the story, and it's not about going into these tombs. When you go into the tombs and the, th- the tombs that you explore and you find, they are for extra gear or you know unique items and things like that. But here it sort of becomes the main purpose of the story. And I wondered how you guys felt about the adaptation. Did it do that justice, or is it just kind of a little bit too much like something, say, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which there has been some criticism of the film saying that it is pretty much the same story. Woman finds a diary, missing dad, goes looking for him, ends up trying to, you know, go into a tomb and has to complete these challenges to get to the end and find the specific thing. Did you guys feel that way or did it feel fresh and new enough for you i you know what i can't and won't argue the similarities because that is kind of what is advertised um but i did think that the like there's one section that is kind of like traps later on that i i was pleasantly surprised at how that was used uh it was it was itself kind of a secondary thing uh after the fact but I feel like it is hard and the, the the Angelina Jolie versions of it are kind of they have more puzzles and and problem solving in as much as like she realizes it and explains it to us. So that's not particularly a thrilling experience on its own. Um, and then it just leads to action set pieces that are heightened because they are informed by puzzle solving, which wasn't really even what was going on here. The one big challenge was i wouldn't really even call it an action sequence it's kind of like uh temple of doom you know the the squeezing room or whatever yeah um, the the floor that's falling out and yeah and i think that would be it, people might want more than that i think that this kind of walked the line in the middle and didn't go too far one way or the other which that might also be a little bit disappointing for some people but the one moment i remember is when the door to the vault has been exposed and she finally solves it and they don't explain how she's solving it in any way, but I didn't care because I was invested in where the story was going because of this. So that's probably a victory in itself because I cared more about the characters than how satisfying this final puzzle was going to be. And then uh, like you said, Aaron, the big reveal in the end, which in other films and other TV shows could be incredibly underwhelming and what a waste of all of this time. 
And similarly, I was invested in the characters in the story that that felt more of a resolution to me than having the rug pulled out. Yeah, that actually that door sequence, by the way, for Patrick, who has not played the game and for any listeners who may not know this is actually in the game. It's like a, it's ripped straight out of the game. And there are a couple moments like that throughout the movie, not always the puzzles, but that one I remember very vividly like climbing on the door and switching the puzzles. And so I, I thought that was great because fans are going to connect with that and remember that and have that response where like I solved that puzzle personally mm-hmm. and I loved seeing it happen. I was giddy. I was just like, I kind of like started poking my daughter and I was like, remember that's in the game. That's in the game. And <laughs> so it was a lot of fun. Patrick. Well, I will say that I think this was probably my biggest criticism. I felt like there was a lot of explaining in the movie. There's a lot of exposition, a lot of voiceover. And there were so many, there were just several puzzles and things that were being thrown at me that I didn't, I didn't feel like I had time to necessarily breathe and say, okay, what's, okay, what's, wait, what's going on? Okay. That's okay. And then you're in the next scene. Uh, like you, Andrew, I was invested more in the characters themselves, so it didn't bother me as much. But I look at a, a movie like this and the criticism from uh, the comparison to Last Crusade, and I'll quote James Harleman, who says that good stories aren't created, they're refreshed. And, you know, he uses a, a passage from Ecclesiastes that says there's nothing new under the sun. And that's true. I mean, this is a familiar story, and yes, it might be a callback to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, or it might just be a straight up like, hey, this is just like that. But even Indiana Jones, that whole franchise was calling back to the old serials back in like the 1930s and 40s. So it it really depends on your audience. Um, I, I think when you have fans of a video game, a video game generation who love a story like this, they're not going to care that it looks like something older and I'm okay with that because if you can tell a story successfully and successful is very subjective for sure. It depends on the person watching the movie, but if you can tell that story successfully in a way that feels refreshing, if you're familiar with an older property that it borrows from or straight up steals from in some cases, then it shouldn't necessarily affect the fact that you're looking for something new. You're looking to be entertained. And so when a movie can, can get you that, then those elements then become less distracting from, for, for that particular audience. But they were for me, for sure. I mean, I, I picked up on those, but at the same time I was like, so, I mean, you've got a really strong female lead here and you've got some great action sequences that are completely distracting me from this overall narrative that might feel familiar because the original story is pretty entertaining too. So it's not like you're borrowing from a bad story. I mean, I'd rather you borrow from a good story and refresh it than to tell me a repeat of a bad story. Yeah, that that's a good. And I only mentioned the other puzzles in Tomb Raider, but you just reminded me, you know, I enjoy that too. Like National Treasure. I love National Treasure for those, mm-hmm. you know, and they explain it to you there too. Um, I think better than the Da Vinci Code, which is one of the famous things, which really ended up being, I'm just telling you what I did. Uh, National Treasure, the whole point of that movie is to be fun. I feel like if we spoke to the people making this Tomb Raider movie and asked them, you know, why didn't you spend more time with the puzzles? They could just say, our movie isn't about that. And I, and I would say, okay, well, I understand what you're saying. You know, 
the the games are and that original game premise is about problem solving but this film story just isn't and i think we've even said this before on different occasions that i am absolutely now 100% okay with the creators of a game or movie or tv show who if they say we have no ambition of reinventing or refreshing one particular part of this then i am fine with them not bothering doing that you know if if you know guys do we have a good idea for how to make this puzzle interesting that doesn't take away from our story no then just have her solve it and yep. it's it may be lesser b- because of that and that's if you're going there for that i understand why you would be disappointed by that but if they made the decision to keep her story um in the center and the the story about her and her father um mattering more than well he didn't want to find the thing right i mean that's the the big yeah. thing so i feel like that's i'm okay if the movie doesn't want to show the show lara arriving in the airport in china taking the cab to the ferry and then looking around in the docks i'm also fine with them not showing that either yeah i i think they actually do tell you how she's solving the puzzle and it's done very subtly and i enjoyed that a lot because it trusts the audience and it doesn't handhold you because they show multiple times when she has the diary open when she's looking at stuff they show the symbology that shows those specific stones on that door for that puzzle being rotated they show them with arrows and that's how it works in the video game world too in the video game world in uncharted all the time you you pick up these diary entries and they show you pictures of puzzles with like potential solving solving ideas and you have to use that to figure it out so i just naturally assume well she had this knowledge from reading these pieces of text and now she put it two and two together because she's smart and they give you that one shot when she leaves the boat lingering on her, right? And there's the moment of, oh no, did she forget to take that? Yeah. And then after the fact, it was, oh, I guess that was just intended to remind us. Exactly. This exact type of puzzle is her thing. Yep. Well, um, before we talk more about emotions, I want to mention the action CGI and see how you guys felt about that. Because it's a big part of this. It's got some set pieces. I will say that the way that I took it was as kind of a mixed bag. The action here is done very bombastically and in a big way. Some of those scenes are ripped directly from the video game. So that was a ton of fun. When you land on that plane or when Lara lands on that plane (laughs) and has to crawl her way out of it and run and jump off of the wing. And then she falls with the parachute in her hands and has to pull the cord, all of that. It's something I have personally controlled her doing multiple times. And so there is a level of connection for me when that moment is happening that makes me not care what it looks like. The same kind of goes for that scene on the boat when the boat crashes up against the rock and she's doing like monkey bars (laughs) across the outside of the boat. I've done that. And so I'm able to somewhat forgive what, honestly looks like really crappy CGI in my opinion. That boat, when it smashed up against that rock, just was looks terrible and I just thought it was bad. And I, I found that interesting because the director here, his name is Roar Uthaug, and I'm who knows if I'm saying that correctly. He's Scandinavian. Uh, he made a movie called The Wave 
a few years back. It's a disaster wow. flick and it is phenomenal. And I highly recommend everybody go seek that out and check it out because it is a very emotional disaster movie. Mm-hmm. Really, really very good. Much a, a father's story also. It is. Yes. And so I can see why he was picked for this, but some of those special effects didn't come through for me at other times. They worked just fine. Uh, again, Laura's sliding down things, trying to avoid left and right. I feel like I'm, I, I almost found myself hitting X in my, you know, my invisible controller while she's moving because I'm like, no, jump, no, you know, ducks, move that. And I think that that's a success, but I'm curious how you guys felt about that, the action and CGI. Well, as it relates to the games, my personal favorite was at the end when she was scrambling up that incline with the pick and I was going like L1, R1, L1, R1. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> do that. But, uh, I mean, I think that we all, I, I assume the average moviegoer is less sensitive to this stuff than I am, or than probably all of us are, because like I just saw Black Panther and I love that movie and some of the CG and that was at times equally as suspicious or just kind of, oh, you know, um, you couldn't just film my guy doing that. Um, but it's the same thing here where I guess it is kind of the 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 trade-off, like the boat scene. That's just, I don't even know what I'm supposed to be looking at. If I saw this in real life, I feel like I wouldn't know what to look at. Uh, so that was equally a, uh-oh, it took me a few seconds to even realize what was kind of happening at the time. And then we're on to the next thing. But I, I think the, because I'm assuming like 90% of the backgrounds in this movie are CG when the action kicks off. So it's probably, for the most part, fine um, in the background of that. I thought the plane sequence was was fine i didn't um i think maybe that's the best thing is that there were a few times that stuck out to me one of them being when she got cut loose from the parachute and fell into a roll and then i cut to the actual actress and that was the moment where i thought that was fake but that was actually pretty good because i don't know how you would do that not using cg for that um you called out one of the best moments which was her reaching for that parachute and i think I didn't remember that sequence from the game as vividly, but I mean, Patrick was probably the exact same thing for you. Just seeing the amount of movies we do. I thought, Oh man, she's going to grab this thing at the exact second it drops. And I really hope they make her dropping with it feel as satisfying as I know that it can be. And I thought they nailed that. So yeah, maybe it's when it's well executed. Uh, I don't mind it as much. There was a few, you know, running Laura, looked as the same as running wonder woman at times which was this is just the world we live in but i didn't think there were any like in your face spotlighted plot you know effects that were uh terrible and then when the third act of the movie we get to the actual like what's in the tomb i didn't find that particularly offensive either so maybe like less is more or subtlety is key if you don't have the budget to make all of this stuff look good because I prefer this to have her do incredible superhuman things that I obviously know it's not her doing it. I still felt like a real person did most of it. Yeah. If I had to pick between two halves of a, of a movie, I enjoyed the first half visually more than I did the second. And I think it had to do with the fact that it felt a little bit more grounded and I use, I'm going to use Mission Impossible as an example, even though I know it's completely not grounded in terms of it and just the, the, the craziness of it. But 
I gravitate when I, the action sequences that I gravitate towards are the mission impossibles, the fast and the furious. And, and I felt like the first half of the movie did that in giving us Laura's, her origin, like who she was and giving us kind of the history of where she was, where she is now. And I didn't, I didn't hate the, the, the back half, but I think it was more of a personal preference in that I like, if you're going to give me fantasy, it's this weird thing. Give me practical effects. Um, If if you're going to give me um, adventures in a tomb or in the jungle, give me more running and, and, and practicality in your stunts, because that helps kind of keep me grounded in a particular piece of a genre that I'm not particularly fond of. And you would think that if it's a, if it's a fantasy story or if it's gravitating towards more of the supernatural or more of the out of, you know, just out of the realm of possibility, more of the impossible that you want to use more CGI. But I think that's more distracting. And like, like you, Aaron, the, the, the boat crashing sequence was probably one of the muddiest scenes for me. I don't feel like I saw everything. I felt like it was dark in a lot of places and there was a lot going on. And so I didn't have a chance to feel whether shallow or deep the the emotion was i didn't have a chance to feel anything really because it was either going really fast or i wasn't seeing enough of it to comprehend the whole epicness of what was going on it felt too epic to me like Mm. okay scale it back okay i get that there's this big storm happening but you don't have to just constantly bombard me with the water i don't i don't right i I haven't gotten to a place where i need to feel that the most effective part of that scene for me too was after she jumped in and we're just following her you know, swimming, seeing the island in the distance and you yeah. get the kind of water rising and falling. So mm-hmm. that is, that's a perfect, the mixed bag. Yeah. My biggest compliment to it is that I felt like I was watching cutscenes multiple times. Like mm-hmm. I felt like I was watching the good ones. Cutscenes. Yeah. The good ones. Not and her I, getting like speared through the stomach 15 times because you keep dying in that one part. Right. And that's well, and that again, more wonderful, opportunity uh, great because you mentioned spear made me think of this more nods to the game that are taken directly from it is that moment where she has to pull that piece of wood or whatever out of her stomach like you have to do that in the game and uh, again my daughter and i are just kind of like looking at each other and like wide-eyed like oh my gosh she's doing that thing and it's such a cool experience to see it in front of you like happening again something you participated in and I was like, she's going to pass out when she does that. Remember, she's going to, and sure enough, you know, like that's what happens. <laughs> and so I love that. The The other action scene that I got to call out specifically is her finally going ham with the bow and arrow uh, one after the other, just wham, wham, wham on the run in close proximity, you know, firing off arrows and taking people out. It felt so realistic to me and so natural for someone that is really good with a bow because they've shot it a lot, but they're not superhuman. And I mm-hmm. love the portrayal of that. I don't but, think it even, she hits a guy with it and he's still, you know, he's not like suddenly magically movie dead. No, they're not insta kills. Mm-hmm. Uh-uh. No, they're not. They're like, shoots them in the shoulder or, you know, sometimes it takes them a second. Yeah. Well, I want to go to talk just a little bit about the, emotional aspects of the film and the story. Cause we've all mentioned that we really enjoy that aspect of this. 
So this is kind of centered around her looking for her father, Laura as a character, not giving up hope that he's alive. She doesn't want to sign off on this will because she just can't accept that he's dead. It's like seven years past, I believe is what they say. And so we get some really great moments of sacrifice throughout where I feel like she kind of sacrifices herself for him in various choices she makes. And obviously he does the same for her um, in a big way. And those, that big overarching story is really what made this great for me. One moment I want to call out that I really liked when we were sitting in the theater before seeing the film, I was talking to fellow critics who had no idea what this was about, (laughs) like traditional, (laughs) you know, like actual film critics that aren't like me who play video games. And I was explaining, you know, this is based on a video game and here's some of the things that you can look for. One of my favorite moments in the 2013 video game, when Laura ends up on this island alone and she finds the things to make a bow and she realizes it's after she's pulled that thing out of her stomach and she's trying to survive because you go through this, this part of the game where you're in survival mode she has to kill a deer and the game does a phenomenal job of making this a core emotional moment where she zooms in on the deer's face. She sees it and she has to pull the trigger. And so you do it as a, you know, you're controlling her. And it was always very powerful for me and my daughter and my son have both said the same thing for them. They were like, I hated that because it made me so sad, but I understood why she had to do it because she had to stay alive. And you can feel in the game, the character wrestling with that taking of the deer's life. And so I wanted that scene to be in the movie. And what I found brilliantly done is that they take that same emotional concept, only instead of a deer, it's when Laura kills the first soldier. And you can see it all over her face. I, I, almost my connecting point, because it's such a great moment when she realizes what she's just done. She's taken a life and she's moving from you know, character who's just a girl who kickboxes on the weekend and, you know, delivers whatever it is. She delivers on a bicycle in London, which is really cool, by the way. Uh, I didn't know that existed. So she's transitioning and now she's she's done this thing and it's like she's all in and it's her. She's forever changed. And so I thought that was depicted in a really cool way while also kind of nodding to what happens in the video game, but being different and summed up the whole emotion of this movie for me it really kind of touched me just the whole story and I, I know you guys have said that what are your thoughts on the emotional resonance of the story i'm just thinking about that moment yeah i think that it was it kind of goes to what i was saying about authentic i think that the emotion of it hit more relatable and more plausible than necessarily epic you know, like maybe that goes to it too. There wasn't some grand scene of her father professing his love for her because instead we got something that felt a bit more honest or maybe just more genuine, or, you know, not honest or dishonest. But I did feel like her, her as we are introduced to her, and I think that's the difference for that particular scene, is in the game, like Lara is a lot more from the life of Lady Lara than this character is which would be maybe a difference. Like I think that in that moment for Lara in the game, 
she never wanted to do this. You know, she never wanted to, she never wanted to hunt. She never wanted to kill. She never wanted to do anything like that. And I think the, that's maybe less entertaining in film because there's just other ways to communicate that. Like you assume that a character in a movie doesn't want to kill somebody. Like that's just, we get it. Um, But instead they found a way to make it play. Like she is a good person. She is a person who does not want to harm people, but she is also the person we met who is when pushed, you know, they will do what they have to. She is a, and I think that was the big thing is that the survivor, right? I think they were, refer to the new Tomb Raider in the greater fiction of it as the survivor like version of Laura or Lara. And that is definitely not in any grandiose way. I think that this is just like what I said earlier, this is what a survivor looks like in a believable way in our world. And she is not in kind of the way that she's aspirational. I don't think she is scarred emotionally. Um, I think that she just becomes more emotionally complex, you know, like this is a maturation in a way that is not necessarily from a young girl to an adult, which that uh, Terminator game was also kind of stepping in, but an adult to a more complex, exceptional adult that you would see Oprah interviewing or something, you know, because they had found some supernatural thing that people outside of this situation can't comprehend, but maybe more people would find the same were they in it, you know? And, and so it felt like in a very real way, I really liked the Lara at the end of the movie because she seemed like a real human that like this happening to her had just made her a, a hero because we think she is not because we're told she is, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think it makes sense uh, completely. And I think what Tomb Raider does successfully as a movie is it it shows us, like what you said, that she's capable of doing these things. Like we get these flashback sequences of her using her bow and arrow and um, we we see her as a, as a courier and just the athleticism that she has. I mean, the first shot that we see of her that we're introduced to is she's getting her butt handed to her (laughs) in the, you know, in a kickboxing ring. And so we're already being told and being shown, Hey, she's tough. But over the course of the film through choices that she makes, whether because she feels like she has to, or because she needs to, or, or whatever the motive is, by the time we get to the end of the movie, the emotional connection that we have with her is earned. It's one of these things where, when she when she begins to go through that final sequence of battling these these bad guys and and going against our our main antagonist uh, played by Walter Goggin or Walton Goggin excuse me um it's believable it doesn't feel like we've made a dramatic step forward from who we were introduced to at the beginning of the movie and i think that that's where the success of the story lives and the fact that we saw a we saw a, a change in her that made sense it didn't feel forced. It didn't feel like, okay, we've got to get her into the tomb. And we've got to get her kicking butt in the movie. What we have is here's someone who doesn't want to give up on her dad. She doesn't want to mm-hmm. believe that he's dead. And when she has the slightest bit of hope that he might be alive um, 
or something that could lead to answers about his whereabouts, whether live or dead. She goes after that. That's believable to me, as opposed to setting us up with a strong-willed woman who is keen on puzzle solving and who wants to go after buried treasure. Uh, the father aspect of it, I think, is something that a lot of us as people can connect with because I'm sure all of us can say we have some kind of dad issues <laughs> in some way, shape, or form. But I think when you have a family connection like that specifically, that's what connects your audience pretty successfully. That's a that's a that's mm-hmm. a proven thing. And I think it was done well. I think it was done effectively. I didn't feel like I cried at any point. I felt like I was still in an adventure movie, but the, but the heartbeat of that was her relationship with her dad. And, and I'm glad that that was there because had it not been there, I felt like it would have been just a lot of action sequences pieced together uh, to try to get a cash grab out of a, out of the property. And, um, and it would have cheapened it. It would have cheapened it. And it would have been most video game adaptations. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's That's what they do. And I feel like it's a small detail that more writers should take note of is on paper, like this could have come off as really, we could have seen every step of the way telegraphed like, oh, she's rich, uh, but she doesn't want to be. And she wants to go boxing and she wants to be athletic and she wants to know how to fight. And they're like, see all of the things that she can do, you know, and isn't this really fortuitous that she ends up relying on that, which she wouldn't have had if she had had a a fine upbringing. Like, isn't it all, you know, the swing away, like it's the, oh boy, this is really faded to us. But it, it, I don't think it feels like that because when we're watching her fight or when we're watching her do her job as a bike messenger or when we're watching her in that race, which is a really fun idea. That was a great sequence. I thought, um, which again is more grounded. They're on, mountain bikes um or like fixed gear bikes running through london it's not communicating to us what she is physically capable of doing and watch out for these because they'll come back later in the film every one of them was just informing us on who she is so we we understand that she fights because she is a person who likes feeling like she's strong you know and that kind of thing we like we see her in that race and we're not realizing that, Oh, she's crafty. It's informing the kind of intuition and intellect and wits that she has about her. So when you get to the end, we aren't thinking you have been trained for this. I just find myself thinking like you got this, which is, which is maybe a small distinction to some people, but I think that it anchors it in her relationship to her dad, because like you said, when he says, you're worth 10 of me. We, or maybe me, I'll just speak for myself. I interpreted that as he is speaking practically, like you are capable of doing more than I am to, to write this situation. And I don't think, you know, that's kind of where we're left at the end of the movie where he, where she is kind of taking up the mission that he couldn't, like her father could not possibly have not the mission that he was robbed from him or that he died trying to start. It's just, she is a more effective person than he is. And when he recognizes that and is proud of her, uh, I just think that takes this movie or that emotional core of it to a place that these movies never even bothered to try to get. hundred percent agree. And that also makes me, I just want to make sure we mention Walton Goggins and his character, because again, in the video game series, his character, Matthias 
is yeah. like a cult leader and he's trying to bring back this goddess because he wants a power and it's it's changed here and i really buy him as a villain here in a way that is personal he feels like someone who is just fed up with being stuck on this island he came here initially to do a job he can't get it done so when he kills people kind of recklessly it feels to me like he's not just doing it out of hatred. He's doing it out of, I'm, I'm tired of being here. Like, I just mm-hmm. want to get home to my own kids. He says that. And I bought that. I bought this idea that like, it's not about anything other than just finding a means to get off the Island for himself. Like that's all that he cares about. He doesn't care about what is in this tomb or what it is that Trinity wants. None of that matters to him. It's just do the job and get home to my own family and I thought that made him more compelling. Yeah. Um, I also really liked Daniel Wu's performance as Lou Rin. I, f- I was a little sad, honestly, because I felt like he was underutilized and I wanted more of him. And I'm really crossing my fingers that he's going to show up more in the sequel because he's the guy now. Yeah. Yeah. He's such a cool character. Like I, I love the way that they met him having, you know, a father with has disappeared as well and showing kind of a different perspective on how someone might deal with that by wallowing around and drunken stupor and gambling as opposed to what she's doing. Right. It shows two different sides of that. And he just, he was great. Um, you know, his reliance on her and yet his dedication to, I'm not going to leave her because of what she did for me, him getting to have a, another emotional moment where the villagers say, listen, no, we're going to, help you because your father sacrificed himself for us and him getting to learn that history and get that closure about his dad. Those are all little things that I I'm just so surprised that the movie was able to do in the writing. And I, and I hope that movie goers notice those beats. Speaking of sequels. So Trinity, the organization consistently mentioned in this game, in this movie is not in the first game. Trinity shows up kind of in the second game and that's really what it's all about. And I love that they merge those two things together. I like the idea of what Trinity is. It's this organization that's going around the world, you know, getting relics and treasures, a mostly religious significance of some form or fashion. And it really drives the narrative of rise of the Tomb Raider, the second game. Mm. So were you guys excited about this enough to want a sequel Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I, uh, that felt like a very, uh, that felt like an exceptionally confident ending uh, to this movie, which was her in front of the, you know, um, what was it? It's always sunny Pedro. I don't know, but he's hilarious. Oh my gosh. Yeah. In front of the board with, with all the red lines connecting everything. And um, I think that is, it didn't feel like bravado. It, It felt, earned because they they kind of drove home the point that it is just people she's going up against which was a fun thing i i'm and it was done in the spirit that i like those done where even the title card wicked title card whoever put that animation together great Uh stuff um but i mean to to tell me that it's 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 funny because it is similar to assassin's creed to, to a large extent but um which is maybe just how games end we really want a sequel. Please give us the sequel. But this one with Kristen Scott Thomas as the, you know, potential villain of it, uh, who is just 
it's not who she is. It's what she's in charge of. Like that's such a neat thing to it. In a lesser movie, she would have looked through the company listing and seen Trinity Holdings or something stupid to really clue us in. Uh, instead, they're like, no, it's a little bit smarter than that. So this, there are different ways that she can go about doing this. It's not like, you know, assassins versus Templars in that broad way. Yeah. But um, no, I, I thought that was great. If they, they want to make more of these, if they want to make more of these for as relatively inexpensive as it seemed, uh, or maybe cut down on the CG and just shoot in actual locations, please keep making them because this movie did so many things right. Uh, we have a movie where the big villain is a woman. The goon villain is Walton Goggins. The lead is Alicia Vikander and her second in command is an Asian American actor or an Asian actor. Uh, keep making them. My God, please. <laughs> Patrick, what do you think from a just strictly movie perspective? Well, I think it's got the potential to do what mission impossible has started doing, which is, creating a series of films around a central character and having adventures that don't necessarily have to connect to each other, but that can lead to other things. I thought the ending was great. And, and I like that the, the writers and the creative team trust us to, to not be so on the nose about things. I didn't, I didn't see it coming, but I wasn't looking for it either. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously, Trinity, 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 you know it's going to have some kind of repercussion. But, and when I saw that, you know, there's 20 minutes left in the movie, I'm like, okay, there's probably going to be a sequel, but how are they going to wrap this up and leave me wanting more? And they did it really effectively in a way that got me thinking a lot about the National Treasure Book of Secrets ending uh, and how frustrated I still am at the fact that we're not going to get a third movie because you had that same kind of setup. You had this this lingering kind of hint drops throughout the, throughout the movie. And then you get this like, and then here's what it's going to turn into. I, I hope that we get more of this. I hope that we get this um, opportunity to see a franchise that maybe starts out as a video game adaptation, but becomes something of its own, becomes something more than, than it can be. I don't, I don't think there are any rules against that. Um, maybe if you, but if you tackle on maybe the, the, the word Tomb Raider, you're going to always harken back to a video game adaptation. So my hope is that we, we can migrate away from that, not Tomb Raider, but migrate away from the fact that it doesn't have to necessarily be committed to a game. Uh, the walking dead is a great example. You have the same showrunner, uh, behind the comic as you do the television series and the television series has made significant deviations from what the comics do. Uh, for good reasons, because you're writing for television as opposed to writing for a comic book audience. And so if if we have the chance to see um, Vikander and and Wu and all these guys come back and be, you know, expanded characters from what we've seen in this first film, then more power to them. I, I want to I will go see that. Sweet. Good, because I will want you to go see that. Because we'll probably cover it. <laughs> probably so. Uh, I also love that after the serious ending or the fun, you know, interesting, yeah. smart ending, that we get the final video game nod, the iconic shot of Lara Croft. Because it's not necessarily who she's been at all in this film. And, and it's almost in a way out of place 
when she grabs the guns, but everybody who knows anything about Tomb Raider is mumbling other under their breath in that moment. I'll take two. I'll take two. I'll take two. Right. Like everyone knows what she's about to say and the exact pose that she's about to stand in. And I just loved it. I, I mean, as a super fan of this series, I'm like, yes, like that's the cover of the original game, you know, hmm. and enjoyed and the I heck out of that. It was an origin story for that Lara too. Yes, it yeah. was. And, and I love that they were smart enough to just throw it in there at the end. It's a kind of a funny kind of ending instead of trying to make that a theme, like, which is clearly what the Angelina Jolie versions did. Um, so yeah, it's good stuff. I'm, I'm excited. Uh, the third game has actually just been announced this week, shadow of the tomb Raider, and it's coming out this September. And unlike rise of the tomb Raider, the sequel to the one that this movie is based on, it is not a timed exclusive. So video game fans out there, that is an amazing, amazing thing. Cause timed exclusives are bad. So set your calendars for September for another tomb Raider video game. Well, it is time to jump into our connecting points so this is the moment or the scene that we most emotionally resonated with. We've all kind of talked around a little bit of how this movie did that for us. So Andrew, what would you go with for Tomb Raider as your connecting point? Uh, my connecting point was I, I considered the her first kill uh, shortly, but I think the in in true video game fashion, I will beat yours, Aaron. Uh, I will beat that moment by beat saying my high that, score. <laughs> yeah, it was it was really set up by the first time that she and Wu or uh, Lu Fen, Lu Ren, Lu Ren is the character. Yeah, Lu Ren. Okay, yes. Um, are put on the kind of slave chain gang, and it's the first time that she and Lu Ren get the gun pointed in their faces, which. I have to assume just because I didn't, I don't feel like this for most movies, but uh, hats off to Roar Utog or Uthog for making that feel very unglamorous and unmovie like. Um, I feel like that the tone that that would put into a theater is just very exactly what is intended, which is total powerlessness, um, just beyond fear to is one of us about to be killed. Um, and and dropping the music down, uh, my wife pointed that out to the heartbeat that was almost like a video game, you know, flourish, um, really wanting to put you into the position of what that feels like at that moment where she's not hearing anything because this could be it. And then it ends up being settled and they move on and she doesn't move uh, like she's kind of just stuck in that moment. And as someone who played the game. I remember thinking, this is the moment, you know, like she's probably not going to kill a deer. We're obviously past that, but this is the moment, the make or break, you know, gut check. Um, what kind of person are you going to be? And holding on her, not in some dramatic close up of her, but just unable to move forward from that moment really briefly. And then when she did, it was, this is a new Lara. They're like, this Lara realizes that death is on the table. So, that that moment just really stuck with me because it felt like it had more um, integrity and kind of authentic again, because I feel like anyone who's had a gun pointed at them or anyone who has been in a situation where they felt that powerless or threatened, uh, that moment would really hit them because of how it's downplayed. You know, it's a very human thing. 
in an ugly way. So um, that moment really stuck with me because then after that, I buy everything that she is capable of. I buy every decision that she's making because she has to, because she's never going to be in that situation again. And that, yeah. that struck me as such a universal uh, moment. That was the last thing I expected to be in a Tomb Raider movie. And um, yeah, that just, uh, that moment stands out for me in general, but I was 100% in on her character journey. You know, I wasn't watching it anymore. I was rooting for her in it. Awesome. That is a fantastic choice. I love yes. that connecting point. <laughs> oh, yes. 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 You, you did well. <laughs> Patrick, what about you? What was uh, your connecting point? Well, adventure movies like this, um, in the vein of The Fast and the Furious, Mission Impossible, and Indiana Jones, they, they remind me that the fun factor of a movie should matter just as much as the deep-seated meaningfulness of it. And I'm, I'll be the first to tell you, if, if I'm going to pick a fun movie over one that makes me think, I'm probably going to pick the one that makes me think. That's just how I'm wired. Um, so my connecting point was really more of a favorite scene. And it's that fox chase through the streets of London. Uh, Andrew, you brought that up as, as one of the early, um, early sequences that were really kind of grounded uh, in the movie. And, and that's part of why I enjoyed it. It was very grounded. But it was fun to really experience this as an audience. You saw a ton of fun being had by the, by the characters. Uh, you know, yeah. But Laura's like, I'm in. You know, six hundred quid. I'm. Let's go. I, I got this. And I love the way the the game is handled. I love the, the object of it, where she has a paint can. And I, I wonder if this is something that actually happens among couriers um, in in big cities. I'd like to think it is because you know that'd be kind of fun. But I think the experience was one factor, and the fact that it gave us this credibility of who she was as a character and what she was capable of. I think that added to my enjoyment of the film as a whole, because it also touched on this bit of apparent death and grieving that she was trying to not experience, but experience with her dad, you know, at the very end of the sequence, she thinks she sees her dad uh, walking down the street. And it showed us that that was a significant part of who, who she was because, and you know, as a, as an extension, it's a significant part of what the movie is about her relationship with her dad. And I don't know that the back half of the film and everything that she was doing physically, mentally, and emotionally would have had as much agency if we hadn't gotten introduced to her in the, this particular way. But it also reminded me of the fact that I want more of these movies to exist so that the enjoyment factor can be promoted. We need more mummies. We need more national treasures. We need more movies where people don't have to apologize for saying, well, it was just a fun popcorn flick. No, that's mm -hmm. a good thing. It's a good thing to go to a movie and be like, I'm going because this looks really entertaining and I don't need to necessarily have to apologize because it wasn't a, you know, a five-star movie and I don't have to bash it because it wasn't, um, you know, this or that. I, I, I think we, <laughs> I want more of those personally. I want more three-star movies in my life because I don't think it's fair to creators who aren't trying to strive for Oscar winners. They're trying to strive for good movies and worthy movies that are worthy of that, of that category of being entertaining. Um, and that they're not mindless necessarily. I mean, there was definitely purpose behind this whole story. It, it could be, it could have been cheap. It could have been a cheap adaptation that was just being a cash grab as we talked about before, but it wasn't. And so I think, the success of Tomb Raider and, you know, in, in, encapsulated in that particular scene 
really just sort of exemplified the fact that this is a movie that can be both fun and and have value behind it from a storytelling standpoint. And I want more movies like that that are unapologetic about what they're trying to be and therefore can be successful at what they're, at they're trying to be. Yes, for sure. And I yeah. also love that that scene is one of the standout moments for the score, that Fox Chase scene. Junkie XL did the score <laughs> yeah. for this film. And the all of the action scenes have a very frenetic, franticness to the score behind it. And I thought that that so- served this movie very well. I thought it fit um, yeah. in a big way. But yeah, that, that, uh, can, I, can I point out, mm-hmm. um, Patch, Steven Spielberg recently, if you're listening to this when it launches, uh, gave an introduction to Ready Player One at South by Southwest and made a point of saying in introducing the movie, somebody to the effect of, and, you know, this is a movie, not a film. And <laughs> so a cute. lot of, and the funny thing was uh, on film Twitter, I saw a lot of bloggers kind of scoffing at that. Um, and I took a second thinking like, well, first of all, regular people who don't make movies say that all the time. Uh, but more importantly, those are the movies Steven Spielberg always made. Like yeah. it's a, it's an important reality check that this guy made a movie about a little alien. And uh, like we've mentioned, Indiana Jones is punching out Nazis and um, you know, dinosaurs. Like the guy is hailed as one of the best people in Hollywood because he delivered fun stuff all the time. Right. Uh, and Schindler's list, you know, the guy has facets, but oh, yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. got range. That's, that's patches. And my chant is give us more movies, enough films. <laughs> well, I, I liked Warcraft. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, and I yeah. enjoyed it because it was exactly that. It was a fun, enjoyable movie version of a video game, you know, yeah. adaptation. Same reason I liked Assassin's Creed. I wasn't looking for perfection and, you know, Oscar worthy, like Patrick said, screenplay. I wasn't expecting that because that wouldn't be consistent with the video game that it's adapting in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, for my connecting point, I went with the Richard Croft goodbye moment uh, in the tomb. I couldn't help it. Uh, I was watching this movie with my daughter, and I got to tell you, it was kind of neat to have this movie be a date right after we had gone a week before to see A Wrinkle in Time. Mm-hmm. And both films are about young girls who refuse to believe that their dad is dead, even though he's just disappeared, and they go off looking for him. And I just that was kind of neat and cool and and a a unique experience for us to watch it together. But there's so much resonance in this emotional relationship between the two of them that this scene got me. Every time he says chin up sprout, that was making me almost want to go into tears. Um, Dad loves you. When he says that, um, when they do the hunger games kiss, by the way, I don't know. I don't know why you would do that. (laughs) Don't do that. We're already going to compare it because she shoots a bow and arrow, but they do the like, uh, rue symbol you know with the two fingers and that's the like kiss they do but anyway i i really choked up during this moment and it was a great representation of a father who truly believed he was leaving his daughter for a great cause you mentioned this andrew where or patrick actually where he couldn't continue in this role he knew that she was better suited and that's why he says you're worth 10 of me you don't need me and i think that she shows him her strength by finding him in the first place and refusing to sacrifice him early on. Yeah. And so it means so much more. It feels very real to me as well. It didn't feel like fantasy. It felt like an, 
accurate depiction of what probably would have had to happen in this situation for them to escape, for anyone to escape alive. And so at the same time, Laura has come to understand in this moment that she can't save him, even though throughout the film, that's been the driving force was saving him, bringing him home, getting to him. And that her final act of loving him and showing him how much she loves him is to obey and to actually do what he tells her to do, which she has not done up until this point. And so she has to leave him and then go stop Matthias from letting the plague get out. And it was just so sweet, so sad, brief enough that it's not dragged out and not overly dramatized. I thought it was perfect. I thought it felt to me, again, like a well-written, Naughty Dog-esque cutscene that you would see in The Last of Us and that you would start tearing up and put your controller down and walk around the house for a few minutes before you continue. That's that's how I felt about this moment, and that was my connecting point. Hmm. I I have two questions. Uh, one for Patch. Did she win that race? No, she didn't. I think w- from what I could tell, she, you know, she ran into the pedestrian car. The car, or cop car right? Yeah, she flipped over the cop. Yeah, yeah, and then splattered paint everywhere. And then the the scene ended with the bikers running away. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I I don't think I don't think anybody won. I think the game just kind of ended in the next scene. We maybe like a carryover, like the next race will be twelve hundred. I hope so. Yeah, I, I hope it's, how it's, it's cumulative. Yeah, if you don't, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Maybe they'll do like a skins. Like it'll be they'll put like three tails, and then the order you get them in. Oh my oh, goodness! Wow, I could not. It even. was so fast and furious, though. Like the yeah. the yeah. comparison is just. I mean, it has to be intentional. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of them doing the street race early on to kind of prove Paul Walker against Vin, and it was just oh, I love that. What was your other question? Uh, my other question was. Is this the most convincing actor or father-daughter casting uh, of two actors who are already known? Like, they didn't cast one of them because they resemble or believably are the child of? Because I went and saw it with my brother and my wife, and both of them at different points leaned over and said, she could actually be his daughter. Yeah, that's very true. Acting, I I suppose, because I'm not a big fan of the characters that McNulty plays and he will always be McNulty. But uh, yeah, I thought that was great. I did too. I liked it as well. I thought, I thought the casting across the board was Mm. just fantastic in this movie. Yeah, I do too. I I think the, um, the flashback sequences could have gone wrong for me because there've been too many of them in movies past where you're like, okay, thanks for telling me more about this. But I think each (laughs) one built on their relationship in a way that was um, that, that, that amplified their relationship pretty well. Yeah. And a, a word of warning to anyone seeing the movie, there are two flashbacks. So if you like me, at least uh, see her as nine years old when he's leaving <laughs> and then do the mental math. Of the math doesn't is. work. I know I did the math during the movie too. <laughs> okay, and I was going seven years would make her 16. She should have been like 21. Like, this is not right. Yeah. The math, somebody messed up there. Yeah, and then uh, I'm, I'm I suspect they might have almost added in the second scene, like when they cast an actress who wasn't around the twenty years age mark, and they were like, you know, let's film both, and no one will be confused. Don't worry about it. 
So there were a lot of <laughs> nodding heads in my theater when that second flashback started. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, guys, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, always is. It's a great time to talk about movies with you, Andrew. Where can people find you online, social media? What like projects do you have going on right now other than just your normal everyday editorial work at Screen Rant? Uh, yeah, you, well, you can find me uh, on ScreenRant.com, on Twitter at Andrew B. Dice, D-Y-C-E. Uh, I'm also doing the Flash podcast for the CW's Flash, which is uh, at Flash Podcast. And um, yeah, I, I do random stuff here and there, but uh, Twitter is the main place to find me. And I'm happy to join you guys. I'm always psyched to talk movies with you. Well, we will definitely be having you back. That's a no-brainer. We just have to look at the schedule and pick the movie. I don't know when's the next. You see, we we got to have you back before Aquaman. That's way too far away. Yeah, we will do. Um, oh gosh, too many. There's too many movies now. I know there are. <laughs> yeah, there really are. Well, we'll do a retrospective on the Wave. Oh yeah, I love that freaking movie. It is so good. Patrick, what about you? Where where can people find you? Yeah, I'm on uh, Twitter and Facebook primarily. You can find me at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H on Twitter. You can also uh, search me in the Facebook group and uh, and find me that way. You can at me to tag me in something and start a conversation about this movie or anything else that we've talked about. Uh, speaking of movies that we can talk about next week, be sure to tune in as we go back into the drift and take on some kaiju as we'll be talking about Pacific Rim Uprising, the what I would consider the surprise sequel of the year for me in terms of like expecting or not expecting. So excited to talk about that with you, Aaron, and um, and drop back into that next week. Oh, me too. I'm just excited to see it. I can't wait. I, I can't wait. And again, it's fun to go into them with less expectations. And I would say, you know, like it's great that this one's coupled between Laura Croft's movie and... Ready Player One, because both of those for me are like high on the expectation scale. Yeah. And Pacific Rim Uprising, like, I don't care. I just want to see the robots and I'm good. And so I get to just go in and enjoy the heck out of it. It's going to be another probably three star, like, woohoo movie, but we are in blockbuster mode for the rest of this month. Uh, you can find me online at Aaron L. White, A A R O N E L W H I T E. That's on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and pretty much everywhere else. You can also find me tweeting out of the Feelin Film Twitter account at Feelin Film and very active in our Feelin Film Facebook group. So if you have Facebook, we would love for you to come be a part of that growing forum where people are talking about movies every single day throughout the week and really enjoying it. It's a great community with people who have a lot of different film tastes. You will find people to communicate with and debate and give their favorite movies that they would show a significant other lists and all kinds of fun stuff. So search us up on Facebook, feel and film, or you can find links to that on our website or in the show notes until next week. Stay positive and keep feeling film. button the button we may have started recording once or twice without me hitting that <laughs> oops the greatest thoughts of the podcast no longer recorded because we forgot to hit the button <laughs>